Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Bill Withers died about a month ago. Like a lot of us, I was home when I heard. I was processing the news of the world shutting down around us, trying to figure out how I and my family and my company would carry on. The world was a scary place, and it still is. It was a tough time to lose a hero. Besides the great hits and beautiful melodies, Bill Withers had two great unsung gifts. The plain, devastating clarity of his lyrics, which are breathtaking without ever having a moment of pretense. And his voice, deeply and profoundly soulful, but distinctly non-churchy, as plain and powerful as his lyrics. Bill Withers' songs are full of warm insight and cutting insight as well. His anger was righteousness. His kindness was enveloping. So maybe the world lost Bill Withers when they needed him most. Or maybe the world always needed Bill Withers. What's left behind is his music. It'll be there to comfort us, to inspire us, to soothe us, and to keep us moving. So, excuse me, we're going to do something different on this week's Bullseye. We're going to play my two interviews with Bill Weathers. The first one came from 2007. Weathers left the music industry in the early 1980s, and he didn't really do press. And in 2007, when I was making this show basically by myself in my apartment, I got a press release for a movie called Soul Power. And uh, I responded to it. It was a documentary, is a documentary, made from the footage of the concert that accompanied the Rumble in the Jungle. If you've seen When We Were Kings, the uh, boxing documentary, uh, it's the same pool of footage that, that they drew upon, but the, the music part of the, the giant festival. And I thought maybe I would get an interview with uh, the folks who made the documentary, but they emailed me back and they said, hey, one of the artists in the film, and the concert had Celia Cruz and the Fania All-Stars and Fela Kuti and James Brown and an incredible lineup. He said, one of the artists in the film is actually making himself available for interviews. If you would like to talk to him, his name is Bill Withers. We're not sure if you're familiar. And I couldn't believe it. I don't think they knew that Bill Withers had basically done no press in 20 or 25 years. So I went to a hotel, I think it was the Beverly Hilton or something, and waited in line behind Pasadena Magazine to bring my portable recording rig to Bill Withers and talk to one of the greatest singer-songwriters of the 20th century. It was a pretty incredible experience. It was probably the most powerful experience that I've ever had doing this show. Uh, because Bill Withers was as brilliant at thinking and talking as he was at writing beautiful songs. And he also had lived a full life. In fact, he had lived more than one. He had lived a full life before he became a songwriter. He lived a full life as a professional musician, and he lived a third full life with his family after he retired from the music business. And basically, he just didn't take any mess. And you know, I think he thought he had me clocked. I mean, I was a goofy looking 20 something white dude wandering into this hotel conference room or whatever. It was incredible. He was funny and insightful and decent. And, um, he gave me about as good as I could take and, uh, uh was also incredibly warm and kind to me. At the end of the interview, I asked him to sign a record for me, which I've only done a couple of times in my whole career, asked somebody to you know, take a picture with me or, or sign an autograph. But I really, really love Bill Withers. And he signed it to Jesse. Thank you for your time and thank you for listening. So let's listen to Bill Withers. Here's one of his greatest hits. Use me. My friend. Is their appointed duty? They keep trying to tell me. It's a really an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for uh, thank you for doing it. Well, thank you. No, no problem. You, you grew up in um, 
in West Virginia, uh, in a sort of coal mining region, and, and your dad was a coal miner. And I wonder if it was the sort of the sort of place where you were either a coal miner or you were leaving town. You know, when you were yeah, nineteen. Yeah, yeah. When you grew up, you you made that choice. You know, I made the choice to go in the Navy. The coal mines held no particular fascination for me. <laughs> was there, was there, were there people for whom they held fascination? Some people, not a lot of people from my generation uh, or the people that I knew went into coal mines because you saw what it did to your father, you know. I mean, uh, there was the black lung disease. There was just just the whole look and feel of it. And if you think you have other choices... You know, if I gave you two choices, okay, take this shovel and uh, dig a hole in the ground and go down in it or go do something else. (laughs) I'd probably take something else. Yeah. (laughs) Seems like at least even money. Yeah. Did you you think about different ways? (laughs) (laughs) Did you think about different ways to get out of town, or or was the Navy just the first thing that came along? Well, some people moved to cities, you know, and they, uh, you know, like New York, and, you know, if you look, uh, you know, it was dangerous. It's a dangerous place. You know, it's the only place that I've ever been. I went back down in there later in life just to see what it was. It's the only place that's both wet and dusty. The two don't go together. No, sir. It's wet and dusty and, you know, you're you're under the ground. You know, at at the same time, (laughs) the Navy isn't exactly uh, the promise of a danger-free life. No, but uh, uh, I got a chance to go to aircraft mechanic school. I had, you know, I was worked on airplanes. Uh, I wasn't flying in them. I don't know what could happen to me. I mean, you know, I could drop a wrench on my foot or something or walk into a propeller, but, you know, <laughs> I learned quickly how to avoid that, you know. You know, my uh, my dad was in the Navy just, just after you left, and— um, uh, a friend of his was killed by a rope on the deck of an air ca- aircraft carrier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those cables can break and they whip around and they can cut you in half. Or if you're not careful, you could become too comfortable and walk into a propeller or get sucked up into a jet engine. That That's life. You can, you can drink too much and uh, get excited about your new Porsche and go out on the Pacific Coast Highway and, and kill yourself. So there's a lot of ways to die. What we try to do is to lessen the probability of that event. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I read an interview in which you said that that music really wasn't part of your life when you were in the service. Is that is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it wasn't. You know, were you th- were you thinking I mean, about where it? Where would it? you do it? What are you going to do? You're going to go play in one of those navy bands and go. <laughs> Let the it's record state sen- that you indicated falling it's asleep. It's not very sensual, you know. But you could, uh, but you know, there there might be room for uh, for a guitar or a ukulele or or, or something like that. Yeah, was it was it something that, that talent, you were, you know? But I didn't have that kind of, uh, you know, I couldn't play a guitar or ukulele. And it's smaller than a guitar. Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to suggest that you, you were a ukulele really player. Really get funky on the ukulele. <laughs> I'm surprised James Brown didn't have one in his band. You know. <laughs> Ukulele, hit me. One, yeah. two. But but I did see a guy from Hawaii. Jimmy Buffett had a guy in his band for a while who could who made it a very interesting. He's like a virtuoso. I forget his name. But he is something, you know, so people can turn anything. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to my 2007 interview with the late Bill Withers. Here's another one of his songs. I can't write left-handed. I can't write left-handed. Would you please write a letter? Write a letter to my mother. I 
Tell her to tell, tell her to tell, tell her to tell her family lawyer. What were your best memories of that time? What was the best part about that first, you know, eight, nine years of your adult life? Being in the Navy? Yeah. Well, there was a certain validation uh, for me at that time, uh, if you were black, um, you know, you you expect to be a steward or something, you know, the guys that serve the officers, you know, like you, you see in the movies and stuff. So there was a chance to prove yourself that you could, uh, that you could do do technical things. I remember arriving in Pensacola, Florida when I was 18 years old and having to overcome the perception that you weren't smart enough to be an aircraft mechanic. I mean, what kind of genius does it take to change some spark plugs or something? So there was the the noble pursuit of trying to change perceptions, you see? Mm-hmm. You got to remember, uh, you know, there was the 60s. Do you see what's going on in uh, Iran now with the street stuff? Well, when I was young, that that was my reality if I went to Birmingham. <laughs> you know what I mean? You didn't have to go, you, didn't, you know, you know, you didn't even need to go very far. That was my time in life where you were trying to change perceptions. When you got out of the Navy, you um, held a sort of a variety of, of regular guy type jobs, the kind of jobs that people hold when they get out of the service for a while. Um, when did it occur to you to become a musician? Well, when I got out of the Navy, the uh, uh, my goal was to do something else. <laughs> Good goal. And I, I knew from, you know, you, you don't, when you have a talent like that, you know you have it when you're five years old. It's just getting to it. You know, it's getting around to it. You were about 30 when you made your first demos, right? Yeah, somewhere around, you know. Uh, I, I mean, probably older than that, you know. So, just like you, 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 you watch football games? Sure. Okay, you figure on Sunday maybe there's 20, 40 million guys watching football games. A thousand of them think they could, or maybe ten thousand of them think that if they got the chance, they could play quarterback. Three of them probably could. So I was one of those guys that was, you know, living around, and I saw these. I said, you know, I think I could do that. Um, it's like becoming a Playboy centerfold. I have run into people who have expressed a desire to be in Playboy who it's unfortunate because they just ain't that cute, you know what I mean? So so in the, in the process, in this big funnel, you got all these people. And it's hard to do, you know, to get into a business like this. First of all, you got to have the talent, and then you got to figure out the terrain, you know. What's the path to it? I'm from Slab Fork, West Virginia, so I managed to figure this out and, you know, through some luck and some and some conniving or whatever. The question you get asked most often is, how'd you get started? You know, if if I knew how to write the book on how to get into show business, I wouldn't have time to talk to you. I'd be too busy working on my book because <laughs> I could sell a lot of books. We'll hear more from the late Bill Withers after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. There's more than one science story out there. If you've ever wondered, hummingbird tongues, how do they work? Was the movie Twister scientifically accurate? Or what moons are the best moons? Listen and subscribe to Shortwave, NPR's daily science podcast. Video games. Video games. Video 
games. You like them? Maybe you wish you had more time for them. Maybe you want to know the best ones to play. Maybe you want to know what happens to Mario when he dies. <laughs> In that case, you should check out Triple Click. It's a brand new podcast about video games. A podcast about video games? But I don't have time for that. Sure you do. Once a week, Kickback as three video game experts give you everything from critical takes on the hottest new releases to scoops, interviews, and explanations about how video games work to fascinating and sometimes weird stories about the games we love. Triple Click is hosted by me, Kirk Hamilton. Me, Jason Shire. And me, Maddie Myers. You can find Triple Click wherever you get your podcasts and listen at MaximumFun.org. Bye. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, we're looking back on the life of Bill Withers. We're hearing my first interview with him from 2007. Let's hear another song from Bill Withers, Ain't No Sunshine. Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't was there, no Was there a point when you felt that you had, I don't want to use the, the phrase made it, but was there a point when you felt like you had made it through that funnel and that you were achieving this thing that you had kind of convinced yourself that you were capable of achieving? Was it when you made your first record, had your first show? You know, one of the funnest analogies I've ever heard, this guy was talking about, uh, he had a blind friend. And he became very angry with the blind friend. And he says, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to kick his... Uh. And the guy says, you can't do that. He's blind. He says, oh, he'll know because I'm going to tell him who's kicking his... <laughs> so when, you, when that happens, you know it. You know, they let you know. It's not like you could have a hit record and you don't know about it. You know, you need some epiphany for somebody to tell you, hey, man, you've broken through. You know what I mean? It's like. How did it compare to what you had built up in your mind, how it was going to be like? When it happened? I mean, your your first record was a was a big hit. And it was a tiny record. Like, it was a record that I, I read you made it in nine hours of recording time. You mean the album or the... The first, the first album. Yeah, something. Um, and, but the first album had a, a couple of huge hit singles on it. And, um, and, you know, so it's this tiny thing that, really worked out the way that you would hope that it would work out. Yeah. And I wonder, how did, the, how did the actual experience of having a hit record, being a famous musician, compare to your idea of what it would be like? There's a gratitude. Oh, man, finally something that I thought I could do worked out. Because there was a lot of stuff that you thought you could do that didn't happen, you know. You know, when... When you you didn't make the football team, or uh, the girl you thought was flirting with you, you know, really had something in her eye, or um, you know, uh, coming from where I come from, you know, when you're a kid, you think you can jump across this creek, and you miscalculate, and then you got to go home and change, you know, because you got mud and water all over you. So you know, there's that thing. Then a lot of things change socially, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a business reality to it. You find out that there's some pretty, you know, there's some pretty, pretty mean people in this business. Have you seen the, have you seen the movie yet? Yeah. I, I watched it on Friday. And w one of the things that I was really amazed by in, in watching you in the movie is that, you know, the first, the first 25% or third of the movie is, you and all these amazing musicians, you know, getting on an airplane and, and heading to Zaire to do this yeah, concert. Yeah. It's you and and the Spinners and Celia Cruz and the Fania All Stars and you know they're uh, they're like playing claves on the airplane and mm. you know it's it's really amazing and and of course uh, James Brown and Muhammad Ali and Don King and all these people are on their way over there. No, they were already Muhammad. They were there. Well, they're, you're not so, on the same, not on yeah, the same airplane. Yeah, but everybody's—it's yeah. sort of like this process of everybody going over there, and and everybody has this. Uh, everybody has a really different 
tone to this on this trip. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, and there's like, you know, James Brown is James Brown by that point had, had spent the last 15 years being, you know, one of America's greatest entertainers. Mm-hmm. And and approach the whole thing like now I'm the world's greatest entertainer, and um, and you're you're very quiet in in the footage, and you're almost like look like you're just taking it in. And I wonder what it was what it was like for you to be in this kind of crazy gaggle of brilliant performers going and doing something, you know, ten thousand miles from where you lived, what it felt like to be. Well, people have different approaches, you see. I think you approach things according to your personality. And uh, uh, James Brown's personality is different from mine. James Brown's... (laughs) To say the least. James Brown's delivery was dancing and, you know, and and, and it's fascinating. I mean, it was totally interesting. Mine was sitting on a stool with an acoustic guitar, you know. So that in itself would dictate the differences in the approach and the behavior. So that's that's just not my personality, you know what I mean? There's a scene where your eating looks like maybe lunch uh, and you're sitting between um, Muhammad Ali and Don King. <laughs> and- yeah. I was I like it was it was the most amazing thing to see and and all I could think is what it must be like uh to be you sitting in between and I'll I'll use a word that we'll have to bleep on the radio but basically history's two greatest talkers um yeah <laughs> and just kind of taking it all in so I wonder what was it like to be to be there with these with these guys who are just the amazing champions of bravado and be you know still bill it's entertaining, you know, it's entertaining because, you know, p- people pay a lot of money to see them and you get them for free. <laughs> you get them in the rawest form and it's just, you know, it's just hanging out. I I happened to be sitting there eating and everybody came and, and, and joined me at the table. It was fun. You know, hey, man, you know, you're here, you got all these characters and personalities and stuff. You can't ask for any more than that, you know. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. We're replaying my conversation with Bill Withers from 2007. He died on March 30th of this year at the age of 81. I mentioned in my introduction that you basically full-on retired from music um, 20-some years ago. Why do you think you were so done with it when you were done with it? I'm not done with it, you know. Let me tell you something, you know. Um, but I would think that, you know, you know if you we, wanted we to do We all live it. inside ourselves, right? If you got people asking you over and over again, why are you doing this and why are you doing that, you know. Most people don't have to go through that. You just go. So people ask you, why are you doing it? Where are you going? You just tell them something, you know, to tell them you you, you on that for a while. But I mean, I've I've written stuff. Uh, I had fun writing stuff, Jimmy Buffett stuff. Uh, George Benson has a new record coming out that I wrote the song. Uh, you know that there's stuff to do. But uh, maybe I may have. I have another option. I'm a songwriter. You know, when I had some kids, I didn't want to be in Philadelphia, and my kids are here, and so there's this. This cookie-cutter perception that somebody makes up and you're supposed to fit into it. I don't have to do that. I have choices, you know. I can take my own approach. Do you enjoy the performance part of it? Like, I mean, if you were if you were talking about doing a, you know, a show once a month in Los Angeles or something like that, is that something that you think you would, you would still get a kick out of? Probably, but it's not a practical thing to do. You know, this stuff, there's a business reality that it costs money to put people together. To put people together to play one show, it's not profitable. It's not a good business. Plus, if you have the option, you know, I'm a songwriter. I mean, I don't need any equipment. I can do it out of my head. I can write it on a piece of napkin or tissue paper or toilet paper, you know, for that matter. You know, people used to say to you, well, you shouldn't worry about it. 
you know, let me handle this and you just go do what I tell you. In whose world? In whose world? You know, I, I, I used to have a little poem in my mind. You know, uh, the manager's son goes to Yale and the blues man's son goes to jail. See? The one thing that kept me away out of this music for, for a long, you asked me why I started late? You know, my father was this coal miner, but he was always interested in reading, never got a chance to go to school, but he read and he, you know, uh, uh, dignity was very important to him. The first thing that I had to resolve in my life and the one thing that that was very important to me, and I had to sort this out. Can I go into this thing and avoid the minstrelness of it? This is a business. And you got some cold pimps that will mail you out until you die in your grave. You got as many thieves in this stuff as, as so. So there's a life you have to run. And you do the best you can. And hopefully, as a human being, you improve. I'm 70 years old. I mean, I'm not some kind of mindless troubadour. You know, I have an intellect I have to manage. I have some thoughts I have to manage. I have a life I have to maintain. I want to know where my stuff is, you know. I want to know who I am. I don't want to be some simple-minded blues boy. You can bleep this out. Kiss my with that So I'm doing the best I can to grow and improve my lineage as a species. So I got some responsibilities that require that I be available. You know, I, I, I never had the benefit of formal education. And I've always wanted to better myself. I can speak the language. I can write it, make it rhyme for you if you want to. You know what I mean? And somebody said, education is the sum total of what you know. That's everything from tying your shoe to whether you can do quadratic equations or not. So I'm not, I'm not saying this should be a template for everybody, but that's just the kind of person that makes sense for me to be. Hopefully the music that I made, you know, is useful to somebody. I mean, I get letters from people, that nice letters that people say, hey man, my grandmother died and your song helped me. I like that kind of stuff, you know. As a result, it was important to me. As best I could to try to wind up with a life that had some stability and some dignity in it. You know, it's like people approach you as if to say, well, well, well my God, Hugh, how come you are not, I'm 70 years old. I made some choices earlier than that. That I wanted to be a complete person. Not just this entertainer thing, you know. It doesn't fill up my plate. I love it. Who wouldn't like it, you know? It doesn't fill up my plate. It's it's such an honor to have you share this time with us. Thank you so much for thank for you, being man, on the show. and I really... appreciate it. And uh, who knows, tomorrow, you know, you might see my name. Well, I'll tell you, know, you what, if uh, you if you get if you get on the on bill somewhere, you got my fifty on bathroom bucks. Bathroom walls, all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> I gotta say, my interest in, in you doing some doing some shows in L.A. is is uh, just because I've worn out the grooves on. Uh, uh... No, I'm flattered. <laughs> I, I'm flattered. I appreciate that. You know, I'm flattered. I appreciate it. You know, I'll do the best I can. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Withers. Thank you, Bill Withers. Recorded frankly, somewhat unexpectedly, in a hotel ballroom in Beverly Hills in 2007. The occasion 
was the release of the breathtakingly beautiful and amazing film Soul Power, which features live performances from Withers and many others, including Celia Cruz and James Brown. James Brown is deep in his mustache jumpsuit period. Celia Cruz is in her, well, her Celia Cruz period. There are lots of extravaganzas on the bill in that film. And Bill Withers is just a man in a work shirt with a guitar, and he steals the show. Here's his performance of his heartbreaking song, Hope She'll Be Happier. Maybe the lateness of the hour Makes me seem bluer than I am But in my heart there is a shower I hope she'll be happier with him We have another interview with Bill Weathers coming up after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. NPR's How I Built This. Listen now. Hey, podcast fan. We have a quick favor to ask. We'd like to get a better idea of who you are and what you care about. So, if you have a couple moments to spare, go to MaximumFun.org slash ad survey. There, we've got a short, anonymous survey that won't take any more than 10 minutes to fill out. Plus, if you finish it, you'll get a 10% discount on our merch at the MaxFun store. MaxFun shows have always relied on support from our members, and always will. The survey will help keep the few ads we do run relevant and interesting for you. Again, that's MaximumFun.org slash ad survey, all one word. And thanks for your help. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're remembering the life and work of Bill Withers this week. Up next is my 2015 interview with him. It came right after he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. At the time, too, a bunch of singers and songwriters were organizing a tribute concert to Withers at Carnegie Hall, the same venue where he recorded his classic 1972 live album. Let's hear a little bit of Withers on stage at Carnegie Hall. This is Let Me In Your Life. La, 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 la. I only want to love you. Please don't push me away. Let me in your life. I wasn't even there when he heard you. So why should I have to pay? Let me in your life. Bill Withers, it is great to get to talk to you again. Uh, Thank you, bud. Yeah. So, um, how does it feel when you listen to um, yourself sing live 40 years ago about like it does when i look at uh my third grade <laughs> class picture you know it's it's something that's that i used to be or used to do first of all i don't look like that anymore and uh i probably don't sound like that anymore you know i know i don't feel like that anymore i feel like when i look at a picture of myself in third grade it is a struggle for me to relate to 
a picture that old. And it's a little bit different from looking at something from like I'm in my mid-30s. Like if I looked at a picture of myself when I was 22, I, I feel like I that's something I recognize more than me as an eight-year-old. Like I barely remember me as an eight-year-old. Yeah. Do you have that kind of distance from your career as a performer? I have more distance than you have years from my career <laughs> as a performer. <laughs> not you're, quite. Close, but not quite. You're oh. 33. 34, yeah. Yeah, come on. That's more than 34 years ago. You, your last record came out in the mid-'80s. Right, 85. I was born in 81, I so I was little. Yeah, yeah. I've never not heard myself, you know. Uh, fortunately, that stuff plays still. <laughs> so uh, I've never known it any other way, so, you know. When you were a kid, did you sing? Yeah, anybody who sings sang all their life, you know. It's not something you start doing. Uh, you know, you may start doing it for a living or you may start doing it for other people or in a different context, but people who sing sing as little kids, everybody. Where did you sing? Wherever I was, wherever I felt like it, you know. I didn't have that organized, you know, where people have plays and all. I wasn't in any of that stuff. I was a severe stutterer until I was 30. So my social life was limited by that, or probably dictated by that, you know. I didn't want to take the risk of rejection, so I basically left people alone. They did what they did, and I didn't expect to be included, you know. I only thought about growing up and getting out of there. My whole purpose was to leave where I was. I uh, I would go to the movies and I would see other things to fantasize about, you know. I knew I didn't want to be a grown-up in that environment. There was nothing that suited me there. I mean, uh, everybody worked in the coal mines and there were coal miners, school teachers, and the occasional doctor or something, you know. It was literally a company town where you grew up, right? So that it was, yeah, it was sort of a closed Part door. of the time. The other time I grew up in a town of about 15,000. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was what it was. In, in other words, you can't aspire to certain things in certain places. Because they don't exist. You know, now if I go around, people say, what advice do you have to young people that want to be in show business? First of all, you got to get out of here. Nobody's going to come in and get you. It ain't here, you know. So it's rare that people leave there and become me. You have to have a broader vision and a bigger dream. Did you have a broader vision and a bigger dream uh, even when you were a kid or a teenager? Or could you just see that, of that course, the step yeah. was to leave town? Yeah, I knew I was better than they thought I was. And I had become accustomed to not expecting any approval or any encouragement or anything, you know. They were all gaga over the high school football game. Well... None of those guys were going to play in the NFL, but I knew that if I got a chance that I could play on the big stage. You know what I mean? You can't be major league and think minor league, you know. And this is one business you don't get into by accident. If you're in this business, believe me, you tried. You auditioned, you bounced back from rejection, you took on the uh, competition. Think about it. This is a worldwide competition. Everybody in the world is competing for the same piece of pie. So if you're going to play in this game, you'll find out, but you got to put yourself on the line, you know. When you say that they didn't think that you could do it, who's included in that? I mean— Every, Kids in the high everybody school. that I was around. I mean, I had no family telling me, you know, that there was anything special about me. I had nobody even suggesting to me 
that I could. That's why it's fun that I am, because I can look back on them and say, boy, you guys, you guys got it all wrong, man. You know what I mean? And I can be, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of fun for me, you know, not to be arrogant about it, but it's kind of fun, you know, to say, yeah, you thought everybody else was cool, you know. So, uh, yeah. So any anything you try, if you try, you know, if you're going to play on in the big leagues, you got to have some perseverance. You got to have something. You got to bring something to the table. Out of the whole world, all the people that want to do this, what separates the ones that do from the ones that don't? There's a little luck. There's a little happenstance. There's a little this. But you can't discount perseverance, you know, you can't discount that. When you stuttered as a kid, how did it manifest itself? Was it all the time? Most of the time, yeah. yeah. I figured out that my stutter was a fear of the perception of the listener. And fear doesn't take any days off. So the way I dealt with it was to try to raise my opinion of myself and without being a jerk about it, lowering my opinion of other people, <laughs> you know, or at least bringing it into some kind of reasonable thing, you know. But, I mean, I can't imagine that you had that figured out when you were 10. No, that's why I didn't stop stuttering until I was 30. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think was going on when you were 10? I mean, did did anyone even tell you, like, this is what stuttering is? No. Well, people, yeah, hey, man, people are cruel. You know, they can't wait to tell you. They, you know, they just make fun of you. And then they have all these home remedies, like, especially in the South like that, you know, uh, if they hit in the face with a dish rag or... All kinds of stupid stuff, you know. Did you tell people about your dreams? Were there people in your life that knew that you wanted to? No, that's the dumbest thing you can do, uh, depending, unless you have very supportive people around. I took my first album cover picture on my lunch break in the factory where I was working. And guys were laughing, hey, Hollywood. Well, six months later, they were all asking me for a job. So, it, you know, you can't base your aspirations on what somebody else thinks. If you are lucky enough to have people that are pushing you in the back, good. I only had tailwinds, you know, back then. I only had tailwinds. And the older I got, the less likely I was going to get some some support, you know. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're replaying my 2015 conversation with the late Bill Withers, who died on March 30th of this year. Let's play a song of his from the 1972 live album recorded at Carnegie Hall. It's Grandma's Hands. Grandma's hands clapped in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand played a tambourine so well. Whoa. Grandma's hand used to issue out a warning. She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast. Might fall on a piece of glass. Might be snakes there in that grass. Grandma's hand. You were in the service for a long time after high school, right? Yeah, nine years, yeah. So was the thing keeping you in the service that you had made a commitment, uh, or was it that you weren't ready to do the next thing? I was probably hiding in there, you know. It was an easy thing to do, and uh, I didn't have that many other options that I could see, you know. And uh, not having been fed a whole lot of self-esteem from outside sources, I was, you know, trying to figure it out. Then when I got to California, I said, okay, I can do California. What made you say that? 
because it's California. (laughs) If I had gone back to West Virginia, how would I have gotten into the music business? Where would I have gone? There is no music business there. You mentioned that you stopped stuttering uh, around 30. And that's about the same time that you started recording. Um, no, it was later than that. I started recording about 32 or something like that. But it, you know, one had nothing to do with the other one. Well, what changed for you in that period of your life that you felt like you could have the kind of combination of self-worth and uh, not being afraid of what other people think? No, I was born feeling that way. I just had to get around to doing it, you know. Like I say, people don't start singing it. You know, you're born, and when you come out of the womb, you hear stuff. You know, it's like people who can run fast. They're born that way. You're born with that facility. Now, uh, getting around to doing it, you know, there are a lot of things that come into play. Environment, uh, opportunity, uh, you know. I knew what I was all my life. I knew what I thought I was. A lot of people think they are. Not everybody is. The people that are in this business are really the difference between people who thought they were and couldn't and people who thought they were and could. When you were first recording demos, and the the first demos that you recorded, as I understand it, were sessions that you paid for out of your pocket that you had to save for. Yeah, all of them. Did you think you were recording songwriting demos or singer demos? I was recording something for somebody else to hear. You know, I wasn't recording things for somebody else to sing. You know, it was for me. I wanted somebody to hear me. If I wanted to be in the music business, I figured I had to go in the music business. And the easiest way is to record yourself and say, here, listen to this. Did you say, here, listen to this in person with anyone? Was there anybody who said, okay, let's throw this 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 on the reel-to-reel? Always. I never send anything to anybody UPS. It's only practical to present it yourself. What are you going to do, have somebody else do it? You know? That's one more, that's one unnecessary step in the process. That's scary, though. Plus, how would you interest them? What's scary? To show up with what you've got and say, it's a lot easier to mail it to somebody. (laughs) Or at the very least, to walk up, shake hands with them, put it in their hand and walk away, than it is to stand there and say, okay, let's press play. (laughs) You know what? It's like, if you're that afraid, you need to get a job at you know, McDonald's or somewhere, or wherever you can, because if you have that kind of fear, you know, probably fear keeps more people out of this business than anything else. So so some people that have immense talent are too afraid, and some people that have no talent are unafraid. So if you're afraid to shoot your shot, you out of the game anyway. You just took yourself out of the game. Is fear part of what's kept you out of the business for the last 30 years or so? No, no, no. I I, I haven't been out of the business. Well, you've been you, substantially you, out of the business. You've, you ri- you've, written, you've written some songs for people, and you've, you've done a little bit of recording here and there, but for the most part. Yeah, but it's hard to drive around all day without hearing something that I did. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to my 2015 conversation with Bill Withers. He died about a month ago. When you got your first record deal, as I understand it, you hadn't really done much performing, um, and especially not, you know, headline performing, Come See Bill Withers. Did you enjoy it when you started? Did you Did you like it? <laughs> I don't think there's anybody in the world playing music that doesn't like it. It's something you start doing because you like it, you know. 
I'm going to be playing at the Troubadour Saturday night. You know, I hope some people show up, and I'm looking forward to it. That's it. The producer of your first record was Booker T. Jones. Yeah. Um, famously a Booker T. and the MGs and instrumentalists on a thousand great Stacks records and so on and so forth. What did you learn from working with him when you were... I mean, you know, you well, were like I a learned guy. The, I learned the studio recording process. And, yeah, I learned how to manage musicians in the studio. I learned a lot from Booker, you know, because it was the first time I'd been in that situation. And he was very nice to me. Did he feel like he believed in you? If he didn't, why would he do it? <laughs> you know? People, so, take, oh, I'm gonna, people take I'm jobs gonna go for to, a lot of reasons. I'm going to well. go down here and make this record with this guy, but I don't think it's going to happen. Come on, man. That's not even a, that's not even a, uh, no. No, it doesn't work like that. So what did that mean to you as a guy who had, you know, the first 30 years of his life feeling like he had to prove himself against people? I felt the same way. I had to prove myself against people again. And if I was to do it now, I'd have to prove myself against people. This is a prove yourself against people business. What part of it did you enjoy the most? The part I started doing, you know, playing the music, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know. I enjoyed a lot of things that I'm not going to tell you about because it's not appropriate. But your wife's sitting right there. Oh, uh, you know, she's. She's got a radio, so if she was in Philadelphia, it would be the same situation, <laughs> you know. She has what I could charitably describe as an understanding smile on her face right now. Yeah, she has no choice. What's she going to do, come in here? You know. <laughs> it seems like, you know, for a lot of people, the reason they become a performer or an entertainer is that they want to get some reaction out of people that they want to that's the only reason anybody does it it's called it's, it's but... called show business it should be called the showing off business you do it for attention otherwise you could go play in your closet i mean why go to carnegie hall but did something change in the part of the equation that is how much you want and enjoy that I don't know, you know. I'm me. I've never been anybody else. All I know how to do is be me. We do what we have options to do. I had different options. I've never wanted to be some old gray-haired guy up at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to entertain some people. That's because I have the option to do it. If I didn't have that option, hey, man, I'd probably be booked in, the, in some place on the road to Lake Tahoe tonight. What do you think of most fondly from your career as a, as a, you know, in recording and performing? You know, probably James Gadsden's garage before anybody knew who anybody was. We're just over there having fun playing. You know, because the genesis of the whole thing is you play music because you like it. And probably the most enjoyable times you'll ever have doing it is when you're doing it purely because you love it and there's no other onus placed on it. I once had a friend who invited me over to his house and he had barbecued. And I said, man, you should probably open up a barbecue joint. He says, I like cooking, and I don't want to screw it up. He says, I already screwed up music by doing that for a living. Do you still get that kind of pleasure out of music? I don't know. I haven't done it in a while. You know? Because I can never go back to that. I mean, James Gadsden's been playing with D'Angelo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Buzz Aldrin, you know, went to Tennessee last week. What's that got to do with me? 
<laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just saying you have the option. Somebody else, some James Gadsden is a wonderful drummer, you know. Good as it gets. You can be a great drummer longer than you can be a great singer. You can lift weights longer than you can run track. Some things are have a a, a, a certain life to them, you know. Um, you're in your mid seventies, and uh, you have a certain amount of life left in you. Mm-hmm. Who knows what it is, right? Um, does that make you think about what you want to do with the energy that you have? I don't want to think about that stuff, man. You know. When you're at the age of mortality, it's not convenient to think about that stuff. You know, if I start thinking about that stuff, I'd be planning funerals and stuff. I do have a choice. You know, I can direct my thoughts in whatever direction I like, you know. But why would why would I want to ruminate on that, you know? You know, I want I want it all to be a total surprise. I want to take a shower, come out, sit down naked in the chair and pass away. That way I will be clean when they come and get me and dress for the occasion. Well, Mr. I don't want to think about that stuff, man. Get off of the morbid stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? <laughs> We've already established I'm a broken man. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's really an honor to get to have you on the show. Thank you. I mean that for real. Thank you. No, no problem. <laughs> Bill Withers from 2015. He died March 30th at the age of 81. Bill Withers was a man who lived his own life. He was born with a stutter that he was determined to overcome. He was raised in a Jim Crow coal town, and he was determined to get out. He was a career Navy man, a union member, determined to have a life in music. He made his debut album at 30. Every one of those goals he had, he met. And when the music business got too poisonous to bear, he walked away. Bill Withers was far from a perfect man. He was deeply troubled but he fought with all he had to make a path for himself in life. And he succeeded. It was the greatest honor of my career to talk with him twice. So, thank you for your time, Mr. Withers. And thank you for giving me the chance to listen. Here's one last Bill Withers song, Lovely Day. When I wake up in the morning Sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's alright with me Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is currently being produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun all around Los Angeles, California, uh, where we hear from our colleague Christian Duenas that an ice cream truck was driving around blasting Italian tunes and serving pizza. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. Now is a great time to buy some of Dan or The Go Team's music. A lot of music performers are hard up because they can't tour right now so you can find djw's the best of bullseye mix pay what you will on Bandcamp, and you can find the go team's great albums in any record store but hey Bandcamp's a great place to start 
Bullseye is also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 